Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Thomas Verney will join us to discuss the embodied mind. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, perhaps one of the greatest questions of millennia is, where does the mind come from? How do physical processes or biological processes give rise to the mind? Wherein lies the mind? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Thomas R. Verney. Dr. Verney is a clinical psychiatrist and the author of eight books, including The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, and written over 47 scientific papers. He previously taught at Harvard University, University of Toronto, York University, and St. Mary's University. He is a member of the Ontario Review Board and associate editor of the Journal of the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. He has penned the new book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. Dr. Verney, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Certainly, I, I think a very thought-provoking book you've put together here, The Embodied Mind, where you explore a unique view on wherein we can think of the mind arising. I, I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, as you mentioned, one of my first books was The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And what led me into that was early memory. I was always focused, always interested, exploring early childhood memories. And so that kind of took me to what eventually became known as pre and perinatal psychology. But what continued to be a problem for me was how is it possible that even though children have probably fairly well-functioning brains by the time they are six months after conception, I mean, still in utero at the end of the second trimester, how is it possible that some of them seem to have memories that go back further when the brain was not yet fully developed and it wouldn't be possible scientifically to determine how those memories could exist? So that has always been sort of a problem over the last few years since I wrote the book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And then about seven years ago, I read a case story of a French civil servant, 44 years old, who went to see his doctor because he had some weakness in his left leg. And to the surprise of the doctors, when they did a close physical examination, they took all kinds of tests. They did an X-ray of his head, and they discovered that the man had virtually no brain tissue. He had what doctors call hydrocephalus, which is water, actually cerebrospinal fluid, water on the brain. He only had a thin crust of brain tissue, cortical tissue, yet this man was able to work as a civil servant. He was the father of two children, 
and seemed to have average intelligence. So when I read that, kind of a light bulb went on in my head. And I said to myself, how, you know, how is this possible? Sort of another mystery. And so I started looking into the literature and I found that actually there were a lot of reports of children, for example, having half of their brain removed because of tumors or other medical reasons. And also adults had sometimes part of their brains removed and yet hardly ever was there loss of cognition or intellectual ability. So when I discovered all this, I thought to myself, well, the only way that this could really be explained is that there are cells in the body which kind of act as a backup system, you know, just like you have on your computer when you back up your system to the cloud or any other place, the body must be acting. There must be tissues, cells, organs in the body which are able to contain memories. And so then I spent the next seven years investigating this and I found that there is good evidence for the fact that we all possess cellular intelligence, that all our cells are incredibly smart, you could say, and that working together, they are able to contain memories. So that's what the book is about. Fascinating notion that the mind can be distributed. The question first is, what are we talking about when we talk about mind? This is the same thing as consciousness in a way. Yes, they're all related concepts. And I'm sure that in your work, you have probably interviewed quite a number of scientists, philosophers, people of that sort. And there must be hundreds of books on consciousness. And everybody tries to take a different view of consciousness and the mind. But I think that what has prevailed in the past was that the mind is a function of the brain. Essentially, we have lived in a patriarchal society now for thousands of years. And part of the patriarchal society is a kind of hierarchical system of thinking. So we always talk about the head of government, the head honcho, let's get ahead. All the science that you read about nowadays is kind of corticocentric. It's all about the brain. Just last week, you may be familiar, a Harvard newsletter came out, uh, which comes out sort of every, every week. And it was all about the brain-gut connection. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, you know, they're coming my way. For a moment, I thought, yes, they were, but then not so much. Because they do say that the brain influences the gut and that this kind of signaling works both ways. And then, having said that, they spend the rest of the letter telling you how stress, anxiety, depression affects the gut. But they never talk about how the gut affects the brain. So it's all top down rather than bottom up. And so what I'm trying to do with my book is to persuade the scientific community to take a more balanced approach. The top down is just as important as bottom up. And so that is sort of really 
one of the core concepts of the book, that we really need to look at what's going on below the neck, not just above the neck. Widening the definition then of, of where the brain is. Yes, exactly, exactly. And trying to publicize the fact that we really need to look at the body also as an important part of the mind. It's not just the brain. We need to pay attention to our cardiac functions. We need to pay attention to our gastrointestinal tract. And there is a, an incredible amount of research which is mostly sort of stuck in academia and doesn't get out into the public. And I think that is just so incredibly important. For example, it has been shown that people who have had heart attacks have a much lower rate of Parkinson's disease. Up to 20% less of people with heart attacks have 20 to 28% less Parkinson's disease. Nobody knows why that should be. There are many, many examples of interconnections between the gut or the heart and the brain, which have not been explored. And when they are explored, they are not made public or not at least widely available. You mentioned that when transplants, that changes to personality that sometimes arise because of that hasn't been explored. No, and again, current studies are amazingly interesting. For example, there was a study on the emotions of pigs and studies in Denmark have shown that, that pigs actually have a lot of emotions and through their grunts, they communicate their emotions. And, and these scientists in Denmark were able to determine what these pigs were actually feeling by studying sort of and codifying their emotions. And so these animals, whether it's pigs or whatever other animals we might want to transplant organs from in the future, they have personalities, they have emotions, and we are beginning to see that cells contain memories and therefore pig cells or a human transplant, a human donor's cells will carry certain amount of memory, data, information about that person. We don't know how much at the moment. We don't know what exactly those cells are carrying, but there have been enough reports in the literature to indicate that we really should be concerned about that. You know, we should take that into account. I was speaking to one person in California the other day who was looking into heart transplants, and he said there is not one doctor that he knows of who do transplants who ever, ever tell their patients that they may be transferring also some aspects of the personality of the donor to the recipient. So there's this taboo subject. It is not mentioned, and I think it should. This sort of suggests that the notion of mind is can in some ways be fractured, that there are parts of the mind. We'll swap out a little bit of this, and then you get changed to some part of the mind. There's certainly parts of the brain that seem to have particular functions, for example, colored parts of the brain, visual processing areas. You take that out, and color vision, color consciousness is gone. So to what extent is then mind emergent phenomenon, as they like to say, where it just comes together from all these bits and pieces? Is there a limit to what can contribute then to this emergent mind? 
Well, um, yeah, or, or as they often refer to it, an epiphenomenon, right? The, the same word epi as in epigenetics. So, yeah, I think that rather than seeing the mind as an emergent or epiphenomenon of the brain, which would be like saying, you know, that urine is an epiphenomenon or emergent phenomenon of the kidneys. Well, then the mind is very different from that. And so I'm suggesting that the mind emerges from the totality of the body, the brain and everything else. And there's really another thing that people don't realize is that there's really very little fundamental difference between neurons and other cell types. It is now known that synaptic proteins, ion channels and gap junctions, for instance, were already present in our unicellular ancestors. One of my chapters deals with bacteria, for example. And bacteria are, unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you look at it, very smart. And when they form networks, films, as they are called, they can achieve amazing things. So people have this idea that normal cells are very different from neurons, and neurons are the only smart cells in the body, but it's, it's really not true. Phylogenetics has made it very clear that neurons evolved from far simpler cell types and that some of the brain's speed-optimized tricks were really discovered around the time of bacterial films. So it goes back like millions of years, and evolution has a way of hanging on to biological bits that it has found useful and modifying them for new purposes. So many of the changes that separate us from other creatures have occurred by way of subtle shifts in how genes are used. So the shared biology is what makes it possible to use organisms as model systems, which is what I have done in my work, to understand our own brains, minds, and behavior. So it's important to realize that we are at the moment at the final destination of evolution, but everything that preceded us is just as important and should not be relegated to the dustbin of history. There's sort of that notion that the humans are in this privileged position where mind all of a sudden emerged, right? But of course, it had to have come from a process. So renewed idea of this thing, sort of panpsychism and trying to understand consciousness and what elements of the physical world can be used does everything have a bit of consciousness that can contribute to the mind? And this idea that all the cells in the body might have some contributing portion of that plays into this idea, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I just want to add to that a kind of an interesting sidelight that already in 1994, there, there was a meeting of 52 researchers. I think it was at the University of Delaware. And they agreed, and this has been published. You can find it actually in the Wall Street Journal in 1994. 52 researchers agree that intelligence is a very general capability that involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn from experience, and that this kind of intelligence is already present in the lowest animals like bacteria that we know of. And there's a lot of research, and I refer to some of it in my book, that shows that unicellular organisms already are capable of making decisions, and that would indicate intelligence. So why would our cells, the cells in our bodies, be any less intelligent than bacteria? 
To what extent can this then be used to inform concrete or rather practical decisions about how we go about treating other animals or treating each other to those issues? Well, you, you have just pretty well summarized it. Um, I, I think how we treat, how we treat anim, animals, of course, you know, it should be much more respectfully because they do, have, they do have minds, they do have consciousness, they do have feelings. So I think that we need to keep that in mind, so to speak. I think what is really, really, really important is that a more holistic view has to be taken of our health. And unfortunately, I think a lot of health professionals have a vested interest in the status quo. Many of the researchers and scientists that I have dealt with, and perhaps you too, they sort of believe in what they were taught when they went to university. And then after they finish their training, they kind of hold on to that and are not really open to any new ideas. Also, the current financial system, you know, benefits from the limited view of health. And many in the medical profession are too deeply invested in the current model to initiate change. So the message needs to reach the public directly for real transformation. I found that out when I wrote my my book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. Obstetricians hated it. (laughs) They hated me for writing it. But women, particularly women who have had children, loved it. And so gradually they talked to their husbands and the science has changed. Today, what I wrote many years ago in terms of prenatal psychology is kind of accepted. It is no longer regarded as revolutionary. And so I think the same thing hopefully is going to happen here that what might sound perhaps a little bit outside the box today, tomorrow will be just middle of the road science and not become sort of the object of criticism. So pressure for reform must come from both inside and outside of medicine. And programs like yours here today, you know, that help to put out this message could be very important in that respect. No, I not could be, are very important in that respect. Maybe to close, if you have to take home uh, regarding the book, The Embodied Mind. Yeah, well, one thing that we haven't spoken about is the incredible power of the mind over our bodies. It is really amazing what the mind can do. Well, there was this incredible experiment done by a uh, Harvard psychologist by the name of Ellen Langer, and she studied 82 hotel mates uh, working in New York hotels. And she divided them up into two groups, 41 each. And to one group, she said that the work that they do actually uh, meets the U.S. Surgeon General's recommendation for daily exercise. And the other group was not told that at all. All the mates continued their work as usual, but at the end of the month, they made some measurements and they found in the group that believed that they were doing exercise in addition to the usual work, they had a decrease in their systolic blood pressure, they had a decrease in weight, they had a decrease in weight to hip ratio, and a 10% drop in blood pressure. 
and they did nothing different. They just believed they had a different belief system. And so I think it's incredibly important really to also recognize the strengths of our minds, optimism, belief system, all those things really, really make a difference. So this is what I would like to leave with your listeners also, is that the mind is very powerful and that whatever you think influences your whole body and your relationships in the final analysis of the world. We were just talking with Dr. Thomas Verney. He has penned the new book, The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies. Dr. Verney, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.